as I hear the choir uh, sing that song, I, the piece about grandfather's dreams, I just, Jason, I think about your call to worship, and I think even though your grandfather um, may not have verbalized this, that surely you are a manifestation of his dream, of his hopes for the world, as I see you as a parent and as a father. So this past week, I did a graveside memorial service at Fort Snelling, the National Cemetery. It's for a longtime member of this church, a woman named Lois Dean. Um, she was a very, at the end of her life, with a crooked spine, she was a very small woman with this huge, huge heart. And it was an honor to celebrate her life on what would have been her 99th birthday. Over the years, I've done a number of these graveside services at Fort Snelling, and every time I'm there, I feel the weight of that place, the flags flapping in the wind, these white grave markers just stretched out in every direction. And under every one of those markers lies a person who served our country, who lost their life, or someone who was married to someone who served our country. And if the dead could speak, we'd hear stories from World War I and World War II. We'd hear stories from the Korean War and the Vietnam War, the Iraq Wars, the war in Afghanistan, and countless other wars and conflicts we don't even know about. We'd hear stories about trauma, stories of walking out on families, stories of lives that fell apart. We'd hear stories of bravery and sacrifice. Every time I come into that cemetery, I think about the lives and the stories buried just beneath the ground. I think about our country and our democracy, our values, and what the dead fought for and what it means. I think about the flag and patriotism and how both of those things, the flag and patriotism, if we're not careful, can be used in ways that undermine our democracy, that undermine these lives that were lost, that undermine our shared humanity. This weekend, some of us here will join others in our community and we will visit the cemetery, we will leave flowers and notes, maybe flags and tears among those bright white tombstones in that sea of green. For others in this space, Memorial Day simply marks the beginning of summer. It's a three-day weekend, a time to really turn toward summer. But where and how and why did Memorial Day begin? And what might we discover together if we dig beneath the symbols and the known narrative and draw the circle wider to discover the layers and the nuances, the richer meanings and possibilities of this day? What if this is what an act of religious devotion looks like, this digging in as we seek to discover deeper truths about our own lives and our country? This past week, I returned to the work of historian David Blight, a professor at Yale who has extensively studied and researched the Civil War and Reconstruction in African-American history. It was out of his studies that he came across what he believes may be the origin of what we now call Memorial Day. David Blight writes, and I want to quote him at length here, he writes, for the earliest and most remarkable Memorial Day, first known as Decorations Day, we must return to where the Civil War began. By the spring of 1865, after a long siege and prolonged bombardment, the beautiful port city of Charleston, South Carolina, lay in ruin. 
Among the first soldiers to enter and march up Meeting Street singing liberation songs was the 21st United States Colored Infantry. Their commanding officer accepted the city's official surrender. David Blight continues, white people had largely abandoned the city, but thousands of blacks, mostly former slaves, had remained. And in the days following the end of the war, they conducted a series of commemorations to declare their sense of the meaning of the war. The largest of these events forgotten, says David, until I had some extraordinary luck in the archives at Harvard took place on May 1st, 1865. During the final year of the war, the Confederates had converted the city's Washington race course and jockey club into an outdoor prison. Union captives were kept in terrible conditions in the interior of the track. At least 257 died of disease and then were hastily buried in a mass grave behind the bandstand. After the Confederate evacuation of Charleston, black workmen went to the site they reburied the Union dead properly and built a high fence around the cemetery. They whitewashed the fence and built an archway over the entrance on which they inscribed the words, Martyrs of the Racecourse. David Blight goes on, the symbolic power of this racecourse and jockey club was not lost on the freed men. They knew it was where wealth and leisure and influence had formerly resided. And so they, in cooperation with white missionaries and teachers, staged a parade of 10,000 on the track. A New York Tribune correspondent witnessed the event, describing a, profession, a procession of friends and mourners as South Carolina and the United States never saw before. The procession, as the accounts go, was led by 3,000 black schoolchildren carrying armloads of roses and singing the Union marching song, John Brown's Body. John Brown was an abolitionist. Several hundred black women followed with baskets of flowers, with wreaths and crosses. Then came black men marching in cadence, followed by contingents of Union infantrymen. Within the cemetery enclosure, a black children's choir sang, we'll rally around the flag and the star-spangled banner and spirituals before a series of black ministers got up and read from the Bible. Historian David Blight argues, the war was over and Decoration Day, which we now call Memorial Day, had been founded by African Americans in a ritual of remembrance and consecration. The war they had boldly announced in this commemoration had been about the triumph of their emancipation over a slaveholder's republic, and not about states' rights, nor merely soldiers' valor and sacrifice. In this ritual of remembrance, they paid tribute to the Union dead who had given their lives for their freedom. Though this was a large event, 10,000 people, remember, and it was covered by some of the newspapers in the area, David Blight, the historian, explains that its memory was suppressed by white Charlestonians in favor of their own version of the day, celebrating the lost cause of the Confederacy, a heroic battle that was fought against great odds. And then several years later, in May 1868, with the decree of General John A. Logan, Memorial Day became a tribute to the over 600,000 war dead on both sides, with one of the focuses being on the reunion of the North and the South after the war. 
Journalist Adam Cohen writes, the drive to make the holiday a generic commemoration of the Civil War dead won out. This new holiday was more inclusive and more useful to a forward-looking nation that wanted to put its differences behind it. But something important was lost, he says, the recognition that the Civil War had been a moral battle to free black Americans from slavery. As Blight remarks, this historian, as he says, in the struggle over memory and meaning in any society, some stories just get lost, while others attain mainstream recognition. Several decades later, the story of Decoration Day in Charleston, led by African Americans, was almost entirely forgotten. As Unitarian Universalists, we value the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. As my colleague, Reverend Paige Getty says, our faith calls us to not be isolated and self-centered, believing that our single perspective triumphs over all others, but rather to be humble, to be open to the great mysteries of truth and meaning that this life offers. As a faith tradition, Unitarian Universalism makes sacred the right and the responsibility to engage in this free and responsible quest as an act of religious devotion. And so when we dig this morning and throughout the year, when we dig into the history of this country, the history of race and racism and whiteness, into the history of Memorial Day, it is an act of religious devotion. It's an act of seeking the truth in love. It's what's required of us as people of faith. That's what's required of us. And on this Memorial Day, this day of remembering loved ones, this day of patriotism and freedom and flag waving, I cannot help but think about Colin Kaepernick and the NFL's new national anthem policy. A policy that requires that all team and league personnel on the field stand and show respect for the flag in the anthem. And under this policy, if you're on the field and you are kneeling while the anthem is playing, you will be fined. Maybe you know the history behind this. Maybe you've been following this over the past two years. But here's the quick story. Two years ago in the summer of 2016, then San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick decided to protest police brutality and racial injustice by sitting down on the bench as they played the national anthem before the football game began. He did this for a few games, and then he began to take a, a knee when they played the national anthem. Though initially this wasn't picked up by the media at all, as other players began to follow his lead, the conservative media jumped onto the story, and they completely neglected to share Kaepernick's stated intentions. His stated intentions were to protest police brutality and the promise of this country being unfulfilled. And they labeled him unpatriotic and disrespectful to the flag and our military. You probably remember when the President of the United States weighed in on this year, on this last year at a rally, saying before this large, mostly white crowd, wouldn't you love to see one of those NFL owners say, get that guy off the field. He used, didn't use that language exactly. Get that guy off the field, fire him. And though many have painted 
Kaepernick as unpatriotic from the beginning. He and those who have kneeled with him and been in solidarity with him have been clear about why they are doing this. Kaepernick's teammate Eric Reed wrote in an op-ed piece, in early 2016, I began paying attention to reports about the incredible number of unarmed black people that were being killed by the police, and one of those particularly disturbed me, he says, the killing of Alton Sterling in my hometown of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. That could have happened to me, he says. I have family who still live there. And that's when my faith moved me to action, says Eric Reed. I looked at James 2.17, which states, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so I approached Colin, and we talked about the issues that face our community, including systemic oppression and police brutality and the criminal justice system. We talked about how we could use this platform we had as players in the NFL to speak up for those who are voiceless. After hours of careful consideration, says Eric Reed, and even a visit from Nate Boyer, this retired Green Beret and former NFL player, we came to the conclusion that we should kneel rather than sit the next day during the anthem as a peaceful protest. We chose to kneel, he says, because it's a respectful gesture. I remember thinking our posture was like a flag flown at half-mast to mark a tragedy. We chose to kneel because it's a respectful gesture. Their Green Beret friend invited them to consider kneeling, and I remember thinking, he says, our posture was like a flag flown at half-mast to mark a tragedy. Reed continues, it baffles me that our protest is being misconstrued as disrespectful to the country, flag, and military personnel. We chose it because it's exactly the opposite. It has always been my understanding, he says, that the brave men and women who died and fought for our country did so that, so that we could live in a fair and free society, which includes the right to speak out in protest. Said another way, seen through the lens of race and racism and whiteness, it's fine for black men to play on the football field and excel and make a ton of money for the white owners who own the teams. But if they don't know their so-called place, then they must be put into it. Fined, penalized, called unpatriotic, threatened by the President of the United States. But the deeper truth is this. Whether or not Colin Kaepernick or Eric Reed or any of the others who have taken a knee know it, and I suspect they do know this, they are the breath of their ancestors. And they are connected through time and space to those black men and women and children from Charleston, 1865, as they sought to claim the promise of this country, a promise that we are not meant to be a slaveholding republic, a promise that says white supremacy and racism will not have the final word in our country, a promise that declares freedom and justice and equal treatment under the law belongs to each and every one of us. A promise that protest and dissent are part of the fabric of this country. And friends, if we're not careful, the stories and the history we must not forget and the values we must not set down, those things will slip through the cracks. 
It's why we need these times of communal remembering, this spiritual practice, this act of religious devotion of remembering. In this remembering, we see that Memorial Day can and must be about more than just honoring the war dead, more than just celebrating the flag and our military and patriotism. Memorial Day can be a day of deep remembering, remembering our history, remembering that the full promise of our country has yet to be fulfilled, remembering that our faith calls us to unearth these and other deep truths, remembering that we are all children of this universe. We must remember that the costs of not remembering, just like the human and financial costs of war, are steep because they keep us locked in a kind of tunnel vision uh, with blinders on. We, we forget our location and context and history, and so anybody can tell us what we're experiencing, and if we're not careful, we believe it. But when we do the hard work of remembering, and unearthing and can find ways to act on what we remember and discover, then our lives can become instruments to create a more just and peaceful world. And here's one way you can put this into practice, just one way, there are many. This Tuesday, May 29th at 5 p.m., the Minnesota Poor People's Campaign, in partnership with Veterans for Peace, with Women Against Military Madness, and the Anti-War Committee, they are holding a rally at the state capitol to transform the war economy into a peace economy that values all of humanity. You can join them and the thousands of other people who will be protesting that day around the country as a part of this campaign to demand a moral budget that invests in people over military proliferation, that invests in communities and lives of the citizens of this country. However you put this into practice, May your acts of religious devotion lead you to greater knowledge and understanding. May your acts of religious devotion wage peace. May it be so. Amen.